0: This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast
1: episode. Good morning. This is the Early March Eye on the Market podcast. Uh, this is Michael Semblist. Uh What I'm going to do today is give you a brief update of all of the topics we've been covering in both the eye and the market and in the webcasts we've been holding for clients where you get to dial in and I spoke for about an hour and presented information you could see on the webcast in charts. Um, (coughs) So let me get started. Well, you know, as we wrote in the outlook, um, we felt this was going to y- be a year of a, of a very small, modest recovery in profits and economic growth, but that valuations weren't really set up for any kind of a shock. Uh, we didn't think we'd see an inflation shock. We didn't see, we think we'd see any further trade shocks. Uh, we thought we might see a political shock in the U.S. But what we did not anticipate was a global virus shock of this magnitude. Uh, right now, the supply chains around the world are pretty stressed out, uh, worse than they were right after Fukushima. Um, You've probably seen everywhere the data showing that the infection rates in China have have crested and are falling uh, throughout China uh, with the exception of inside Hubei itself, which is the epicenter. Um, Two things. One, there are questions about the validity of that data, uh, which I understand, and second, even if that's true, that has come uh, at an incredible economic cost, the likes of which I I can't remember ever having seen anywhere. uh, if you look at coal consumption, railway traffic, home sales, transportation hubs, box office revenues, restaurant receipts and things like that, um, they're all down anywhere from 20 to 50 to 60 percent versus normal levels. So the kind of lockdown that China has imposed on itself uh, is, an, is going to be enormously painful for China and reverberating throughout the rest of Asia, even if it is, does turn out this to be for a quarter or so. And now, as you all know, the infection rates are rising outside China, where historically there, have, there are not too many instances of, of quarantines, contact tracing, and things like that, which I'll touch on a little bit later. But the bottom line is that if you look at the slope of the infection rate outside China, it's a little bit slower, but similar enough to the acceleration in terms of the infection rate within mainland China, just lagged by about a month. The the important thing to keep in mind here is to slow these outbreaks and I've spent more time talking with virus scientists than I ever thought I would, including reading articles in something called the Journal of Hospital Infection, which, believe me, is not a fun read. Um, You can aggressively isolate infected individuals, but unless you also uh, trace their contacts that they had before getting sick, and isolate those people as well, you probably won't be able to effectively control an outbreak. And we have a chart here um, uh, in, in, we've had, uh, in the eye on the market and also in the, uh, in the webcast deck that shows you different scenarios in terms of how, how many outbreaks you can control based on reproductive numbers and percentage of contact trace and isolated. And uh, the speed with which this particular virus travels makes that kind of exercise even more difficult. So, there are real questions about the ability of Western societies to engage in the kind of contact tracing and economic shutdown that we 've seen in China um, you 're probably well well aware now that the vast majority in terms of the concentration mortality rates are people over the age of seventy and or people with severe preexisting conditions uh, that 's well known. The other thing I think we'll see right but China. Is, you, is uniquely bad in, uh, amongst all the countries in the world in one way, which is it has the highest combination of bad air quality and high cigarette smoking rates. So the mortality rates globally are about 3.5%, obviously very heavily weighted by China. Uh, I, I have a reasons to believe that that number may be substantially lower outside China uh, for reasons related to not just healthcare system quality, but also Lower levels of smoking and better air quality, which means that a, most other populations are not nearly, uh, don't nearly have as much compromised lung capacity amongst the elderly population. I will say this: um, you know, this whole episode has raised questions about the right risk premium for investing in China, uh, particularly as MSCI and Barclays think about making huge additions to uh, of China to global benchmarks. And there are some articles that we cited here. Um, one of them was called Coronavirus and the Blindness of Authoritarianism in the Atlantic Monthly. That's definitely worth a read. How China's Incompetence Endangered the World, Foreign Policy, foreign policy Magazine. You get the point. I mean, I think there are some real questions here on a long run secular basis uh, about the risk premium that you'd pay for Chinese assets, given what we've now learned about this episode. So we've got a whole bunch of data in here that's pretty straightforward on why the economic reverberations would be greatest. Uh, inside China, and then secondarily in Asia, much less in Europe and the u s but that 's looking at the shock from the perspective of its impact in of, of the China shock on the rest of the world uh, we 're now grappling with the fact that we we may have a china sh- a, a virus shock within Europe and within the United States, and over the last forty eight hours i 've been involved with discussions with our own company and other companies in terms of travel restrictions and all sorts of other things that will have cascading effects on both services and manufacturing. Um, I think at this point, the, there's a few things to, to keep in mind. First, the history of pandemics, whether it was the original SARS virus, the swine flu, bird flus, Ebola, MERS, y- you have a, economically and, a, and a, with respect to equity markets, you have a drawdown in a certain quarter. And then within one or two quarters, you start getting a payback to above trend growth. And by the time you're six months out, growth and is and equity markets are kind of right back where they started from and, and growing at whatever trend they were growing before the, the pandemic hit. So that's the pattern. I think that pattern will be maintained this time. I don't think there's going to be a lasting output shock on the world from this. But I do think that the depth of the shock and the length of this shock may be much longer than things that we've seen in the past because of the impact on on so many different sectors in so many parts of the world. Um, So, you know, I I don't I don't think we're dealing with anything that will have lasting effects in in, in, in 2021 and 2022 and beyond. uh, But there's going to be a fairly big shock in 2020 to both growth and earnings. Um, one of the more important charts that we put in here was how should we measure what's being priced into equity markets and one of the charts we have looks at that to us it looks like this year's earnings based on the market decline so far are expected to decline about 50% in both uh, the U.S. and Japan and Europe and that seems like a pretty big number if you assume that the shock is all felt in this calendar year. There are some other server linings here which is that the manufacturing sector and the wholesale inventory in the wholesaling sector had inventory ratios well above normal heading into this so they've got a buffer in terms of their supply chains. Uh, In contrast both retail and computer electronics more broadly uh, have very low levels of inventory compared to the past relative to sales and so It's a little bit of a mixed bag, but at least parts of the U.S. economy uh, have some uh, cushion against a decline in intermediate goods imports. And the other thing we look at, and and I think most of our clients were surprised about this when I've shown it to them, is that if you look at reliance on China by industry and you look at intermediate goods imports from China as a percentage of all the intermediate goods that you use, both domestic and imported, only electronics, that number is about 20%. The rest of the sectors are, I don't know, 5 to 10%. So in other words, 5 to 10% of inputs, intermediate goods inputs, by sector come from China. Uh, the rest either come from some other import counterparty or are produced domestically. And so I, there are times when I think people overestimate the impact of a Chinese supply chain shock on the United States. Obviously, for certain companies, it's bigger than others. Um, but the but this, this level of China dependence and inventory levels may act as something of a buffer uh, for the next couple of months. Um, from a scientific perspective, I've been doing some interesting reading on the impact of changing seasons on virus transmission rates. So, for example, the SARS virus in 2003, when temperature rates went up, uh, the infection rates went down. Now, there are a lot of other changes taking place from March to May in 2003. They were improving healthcare delivery. They were changing hospitalization rates. They were giving doctors better medical equipment and, and, and more disinfected gowns. And so a lot of things were happening, but there's a lot of science that shows, there's a lot of research that shows that viruses like the flu and SARS slow, the, the, the infection rates drop really sharply as temperatures go up, as humidity goes up and as you have higher levels of solar radiation. And uh, one way of thinking about that is that in colder weather, a lot of these disease particles can travel longer distances and survive for longer periods of time than they do when you have a ha- ha- warmer, more humid conditions. And with respect to solar radiation, UV radiation is, um, is very well known to kill all sorts of surface viruses and bacteria. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the more interesting businesses I've seen are companies that make these UV radiation robots that travel around high school gyms and and hospitals at night uh, when the rooms are empty and sterilize everything. So um, I I do believe that at least as we head from the, the end of winter into the spring and the summer, there should be an organic decline in the rate of infection, at least in the northern hemisphere. The problem is in the, in the southern part of the southern hemisphere, you're heading into their winter in June, July, August, and it's possible that infection rates pick up there. And one last thing on potential impacts. Um, th- there's an enormous difference in the global financial system, and in particularly the U.S. Uh, from 2007. And Some of the charts we have in here show much higher capital ratios, uh, higher liquid assets as a percentage of short-term liabilities, uh, much less repo usage by financial intermediaries. Uh, in the United States, way, uh, you, banks have way more retail deposits than they have loans, so they have more than 100% coverage of their loan book with sticky deposits, right? That's very different from where the U.S. and Europe were in 2007, where there was a lot more wholesale banking that was at risk of, of having a run. There's been um, and also a sharp decline in the risk in money market funds based on money market reform. And so uh, there's been improved underwriting in, in, in securitization, for instance, commercial mortgage-backed securities. And so, uh, to me, the risks in the financial system in terms of its ability to absorb this shock are much improved. Uh, and a lot of credit goes to Tim Geithner and his team, who were the ones that insisted on all of those things at times over the objection of the banking system back uh, after the crisis in 2008. So to to sum up a lot of work that we've been doing here, uh, the markets appear to be pricing in a pretty, a pretty sizable shock in terms of both economic growth and profits in 2020 from this virus. Um, and if we do get uh, any kind of a vaccine or an organic crest, a cresting of transmission rates within the next month and a half, um, you, I think we would then in the summer, in the late spring, early summer, uh, find ourselves on the other side of this with people looking forward and taking a fresh look at how to value financial assets from there. Uh, just as an aside, there was a vaccine that was developed for the SARS virus. It, it was developed after they didn't need it anymore because the virus faded in by late May 2003. Uh, but they were able to find the antibody uh, necessary to create a vaccine for SARS uh, this new coronavirus COVID-19 is not the same as SARS but it does share roughly 80% of the same underlying characteristics and so a lot of the scientists that, that we've spoken with suggest that they are not starting from scratch and, and we'll be starting with a pretty much of a head start in terms of trying to figure out a, um, a potential vaccine uh, for the next season. Uh, now until recently you know we we've been looking at the democratic primary because you, there was there there is a double whammy risk this year uh, for financial markets investors because uh, there, the the first risk was the impact of the coronavirus and the second risk for investors was that uh the markets would begin to price in a significant, a substantial possibility of the following scenario now there's a lot of ifs here, but just hear me out uh, scenario one so, so Step one, Sanders wins the presidency. Step two, Democrats retake the Senate by a small margin, right? They pick up three or four seats, plus they have the, if Sanders won, they'd have the VP seat for a tiebreaker. And third, and perhaps most importantly in this whole food chain of ideas, the new Senate majority leader, which is expected to be Chuck Schumer, uh, has it has been suggested to him that he kill the filibuster. And just to be clear, Without the filibuster, major legislation could be passed with a simple majority instead of by sixty forty. So, um, look, anything can happen. But uh, financial market investors, that that is a risk that was starting to be priced in, and 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 still exists even after results of Super Tuesday. And I just I want to be clear about something because it's very hard to have these discussions. It's always been hard to have these discussions, but it's even harder now. Um, with respect to the progressive agenda that we've written a lot about, its supporters can't have it both ways. You, you can't support an agenda which involves major restructuring and reordering of multiple sectors of the U.S. economy whose largest companies have been driving stock market returns without people like me saying, well, I then have to reprice those financial assets in light of those policies. I'm not commenting on whether I think those policies are good or bad, or whether I agree with them, or whether I would support them, or whether I wouldn't support them. Uh, all I'm doing is saying, well, therefore, if, if policy X, Y, and Z are implemented, it has the following impact on this financial asset price. And so it, it, as we talk through politics, <laughs> starting now through to the end of this year's election, I, I'm hoping that everyone understands that people like myself are in the position of having to evaluate things like, well, if we're going to raise corporate tax rates, that's going to affect valuation of corporate cash flows, if we, if we decide to ban hydraulic fracturing Which accounts for 60 to 80% of US oil and gas production. That's going to have implications for deficits in the dollar and imported energy and geopolitical risk and things like that. If we prohibit or curb stock buybacks, we're going to be inhibiting the the single largest sources of demand for US equities over the last few years, which has been companies themselves. So, you know, all of these things are about trade offs and. The, the price that financial assets experience in light of those trade-offs. And it's not it's, none of this is meant to be some kind of value discussion or value judgment. And um, now, of course, things look a little bit different than they did a few days ago. Uh, most of the research I read a few days ago suggested that um, by the end of Super Tuesday, Sanders would have a commanding lead. Biden now has, based on our estimates, a slight lead in delegates. Of about a hundred delegates. Remember, it takes, you know, 1990 to win, and we think he's got something like 690, and and Sanders may have something like 580. But those numbers are a little bit in flux because it takes time to allocate these delegates after the state primaries. Um, the The bottom line here is that there are um, several things that have to happen before the progressive agenda, as outlined, would impact financial asset prices. Um, but I, I think some people go too far in assuming that, oh, well, that'll never happen because of the Senate. You have to take a very close look at, um, at what happens with the filibuster. And I'll leave you with two things to think about. Uh, the first is Harry Reid, who is the former Senate majority leader for the Democratic Party, wrote an article last year in the New York Times saying the filibuster is suffocating the will of the people. And, um is advising the next Senate majority leader to scrap it particularly if they have a chance of implementing a once in a lifetime um, progressive agenda. And the second thing is there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly recently that talked about how Schumer voted against the US-Mexico trade pact even though 80% of Democrats in Congress supported it and they speculated that he's concerned about hearing a primary challenge from his left um, in the next couple of years and if that's the case uh, there could be implications for the new Senate Majority Leader's decision on the filibuster as well. So the the details matter here. Um, it, it does seem like in the wake of Super Tuesday that this is going to be uh, a closer race, and that Sanders is not going to uh, that markets are not going to price into Sanders' victory quite so quickly. There's still a lot of delegates to go. Um, uh, take a look at at uh, the eye in the market that came out today. It's got a whole bunch of charts in here including a really interesting one for history buffs with an ideological roadmap for uh, the ideology, the the partisanship score for every candidate that's ever run for the Democratic presidential nomination in the modern era. Okay, that's a lot longer than usual, but there's a lot long. There's a lot of things going on. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time.
0: Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, Current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of JP Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the chairman of market and investment strategy for JP Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your JP Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.